I quieted down way too quick. If you guys come to first service one time, you would see, like, from the moment the last song is done, I'm waiting up here for like 10 minutes before they quiet down. So, not that long, but that's right. You guys are just excited to get into God's Word. Oh, let's get into God's Word. That's all. So does that mean the first service, they're not excited to get into God? No, I don't. Get this little rivalry going on between the services. <laughs> yeah, you were. I don't know what happened. Everybody's sick. That's what happened. <laughs> uh, I don't want to talk. All right. We are going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of First Peter. This morning we are looking at chapter 4 and the first 11 verses of chapter 4. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Calvin will get up and bring a Bible to you if anyone needs a hand. He's a Bible. <laughs> okay. First Peter chapter 4. Let's go ahead and read the first 11 verses. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked with lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached, also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The title of my study this morning is The Born Again Life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word, Knowing that your Holy Spirit is here, Lord, we've, we sent your presence through worship. Now, Lord, we pray that as we dig into your word, you teach us, instruct us, correct us, encourage us, Lord. All the things that your Holy Spirit does in our lives when we gather together and dig into your word, we're open to receive it, God, to receive all that you have for us. Bless our time together, we pray. Lord, we pray as we pray every week, if there's anyone that has joined us that has not surrendered their hearts, to you, Lord, they've not repented of their sin and, and they've come to you in faith. Lord, that t- today would be the day for them, that they would come in faith and receive you as their Lord and as their Savior. So we ask that you bless our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. <coughs> A common saying, maybe you've been vacationing in Hawaii at one time and you're sitting there on the beach and you go, ah, This is the life. And you're just sitting there in the sun. Unless you were there a week ago Saturday morning. Then you would have received this emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. I don't know what I would do. I mean, that's kind of scary. Now, there was no missile. The alert was a false alarm. But for 37 long minutes, the people of Hawaii were forced to, to face life and death. Now I read as a result, chaos set in. People were getting out of their cars and running around and looking in the sky and, and just freaking out. I read of one military, retired military captain, a guy named Mike Staskow, told the New York Times that his dilemma was of not knowing what to do or where to go. He said this, I was running through all the scenarios in my head, but there was nowhere to go, nowhere to pull over to, he said. On one video on social media, maybe you saw that, you saw one dad putting his little kid down in, in, into a storm drain to, to try and protect them. And, and uh, you, you know, you saw other images of people uh, huddling in bathtubs. People searching the Internet to find out what you should do in case a ballistic missile attacks you, you know. 
My daughter Laura was telling me the story of a friend of a friend who was there vacationing and she heard of the missiles coming and she immediately went to her closet to decide what to wear. You know what I mean? <laughs> what are you going to wear when you're about to be bombed? I mean, these shoes have got to match the pants and the shirt's got to be just right. It's important. It brings up an important question. What would you do if you know, knew that you only had moments to live? Now, I heard that if North Korea does were to shoot a missile to Hawaii, it would take just 20 minutes to hit. What would you do? Now, I would like to think that I would, man, start sharing with anybody and everybody. I would go out to the beach, and if they weren't on the beach, if they were in a hotel, just, man, you, you need to be born again. Jesus Christ is your hope of heaven. In his last moments, I would tell them, your sin can be forgiven. You can become born again. Because when it all comes down to it, one day we will all have only moments to live. And at that time, all that's going to matter is if you've been born again or not. We know what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 3. Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's all that's going to matter when you face death. Are you born again? Has your sin been forgiven? Well, the Christians that Peter was writing to were living from day to day. They did not know if that day that they woke up would be their last day, that they would be put to death for the faith in Jesus Christ. Without knowing how much time any of them had left, Peter encourages them that they should no longer live their time here in the flesh, but live in the will of God, living that born-again life. Living the born-again life means that you're going you're to live differently. We're going to have a different attitude about sin if you're born again. You're going to have a different attitude when it comes to how we treat each other. We're going to have a different attitude when it comes to how God uses you and the gifts that He's given to us. And that's what we're going to look at. That's what Peter's talking about here. Now, in order to live this way, we need to recognize two things. And these two things are two points this morning. If you're taking notes, number one, our identity is in Christ. And number two, Christ's supremacy is in us. In order to, to, to live the born-again life, we need to recognize our identity is in Christ. You need to be born again. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. When we are born again, we have a, a new identity in Christ. We are Christians. We are Christ-like. God has forgiven us of our sin. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is telling us there is that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and the union that we have now have in Christ, our identity in Christ, we have a new life in Christ, we're going to live differently when it comes to sin. I saw a story, read a story of a woman who was gathering flowers in her garden and she came across this uh, one large rose bush that was just blooming with these beautiful roses. There was one flower in particular on it that just seemed to shine above the rest in its beauty. And the lady pressed forward into this thick bush and, and, and reached far over to pluck it. And as she did, as she reached in, this black snake came and coiled around her arm. It was hidden in the bush. Well, she was freaked out beyond description. She was alarmed and, and ran from the garden, screaming in fear. All during the day, she suffered with fear. Her whole body trembled, and it took a long time before she could be calmed down. Well, the story goes, from that moment on, she had such a hatred for the whole serpent race that she's never been able to look at a snake again, even if it were dead. And, and no one could ever persuade her to venture into a cluster of, of bushes, even to pick a beautiful rose. Listen, this is the way those of us who are born again should react to when it comes to sin. To think of sin as the serpent that once coiled itself around us, we should hate it, we should dread it, we should run from it, fear the places where it thrives. That we would no longer mess around with the sin anymore as this lady would go into a rose garden and face that snake that wrapped around herself. That's what Peter's talking about here. And that's how he begins verse 1. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, because we've been given this new identity in Christ, we've been born again, we're to look at sin differently. Peter says here we need to arm ourselves when it comes to sin. That word arm yourself, it's a military term that speaks of weapons. 
In our case, the weapon is our mind. Get your mind in the battle is what Peter's saying. Get mentally prepared for the fight against sin that you're about to get into. That's the idea. For the believer, the battle always, always begins in the realm of the mind. Before it goes anywhere else, it, it starts in the thought life. That's why if you remember in chapter 1, Peter in verse 13 said, Gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared mentally. You know, behavior scientists for decades have told us that human behavior is determined by the subconscious mind. I think the writer of Proverbs agreed because he says in Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So what kind of mind do we need to have when it comes to sin? We need to have a militant attitude towards sin. We need an aggressive attitude towards sin. We can never get used to it. We can never grow comfortable with it. We're to have the same mind, or I would say the same attitude about sin that Jesus had when he walked this earth. When Jesus came to this earth, he had a militant attitude towards sin. And it was proven by his his steadfast movement towards the cross. He came to deal with sin upon the cross. It's no wonder in the Gospel of Luke that it says that Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. It's like a soldier marching in battle, ready to deal with the problem of sin. And he did. Peter said Jesus suffered for us in the flesh means that he was willing to suffer rather than waver from the will of God. Even his own disciples tried to discourage him from going to the cross. But he remained steadfast, suffering in his flesh to do the will of his Father, though it cost him his life. Now when Peter says, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, the word ceased from sin does not mean that you can achieve some sort of sinless perfection. That, that if, you, if, you know, if you suffer even a little bit, then you'll never sin ever again. I, I wish that were the case. We're not going to sin and not, we're going to not reach sinless perfection until we reach heaven. But what Peter's saying, the born again life means that you're willing to suffer if necessary in order to go on doing the will of God. It means you should choose to suffer rather than to give in to the pressure to sin and to not suffer. When Peter says cease from sin, literally means that we have been released from the power of sin is what he's talking about. See, through what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, the power of sin has been broken in my life. You know, we sang this morning, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I think someone should, should rephrase that, but I'm no longer a slave to sin is what it should say. God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, broke the power of sin in my life when Jesus died for me. That's what happened the moment we were saved. The moment we were born again. The moment our identity was placed in Christ. The power of sin was broken in our lives. You know, many times when believers are praying for victory, they're they're missing the essential truth that could revolutionize their spiritual life. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. In other words, we don't fight the devil in our own strength. Rather, we stand in the Lord and in the power of His might. We share what He has done. He fought the battle for us on our behalf. So we just stand in the finished work of the cross. Now, just a quick note before we move on. Suffering will help you cease from sin. I think we all know that is to be true. Suffering gets our attention like nothing else does. I mean, if you've got some suffering thing going on physically in your life, I mean, you're not really thinking a whole lot of, of, of sinning at that point. Some of the things you're engaged in, you just kind of cut out. The suffering does that. It tends to, to get cut away some of those things in your life that, that, that may be sin. We all, you know, we all have rough edges, and God uses suffering to transform and smooth and temper our lives. Now, verse 2, because of our new identity in Christ, Peter says we should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. In other words, Peter is saying that the reason God broke the power of sin in our lives is that we will no longer live after the flesh, you know, craving those things in our flesh, and instead we'll be wanting, seeking to do the will of God. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to be tempted. I read a story about a guy who was on a diet, and he told his office, I'm on a diet, you guys need to hold me accountable. So the next day he comes to work with this humongous coffee cake. And they walk, he walks into the office and they begin to scold him. They go, wait, 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 wait. You can't eat that. You're on a diet. He goes, no, no, no. You don't understand. You understand. This is the will of God. So he tells them the story. He says, you know, he changed his route to work so that he wouldn't go near the bakery at all. 
he, he'd always go the long way around on his diet. But this particular day, he happened to forget and drove right past the bakery. He says, now I'm driving past the bakery and I looked in the window and this thing was sitting right there in, in the window in front of me. I knew this wasn't an accident. It was providence. So I prayed. I said, Lord, if it is your will for me to get this cake, may there be a parking space right in front, in front of that window. And he said, wouldn't you know it, the eighth time around the block, <laughs> there was that parking space. Now Paul tells us in Romans 13, 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Make provision. Ah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to drive by. I'm just going to look. I'm just going to, just going to stop. You've made a provision to give into the flesh. And that's what we're called to do. Look what Peter says next. He says this. Look at verse three. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. You might add, in doing the will of our flesh. He says, when we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. I mean, what a list. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drunken parties, abominable idolatries. Now, some of you may relate to, to some of those, maybe one. Some of you may relate to all of them. That was me, you know. Others, maybe you can't relate to this at all. Maybe it's, well, I was raised in a Christian family, and, and this, that doesn't relate to me. And, and you kind of look at these obvious gross sins. Well, you never did those outwardly. But maybe inwardly, they were a part of your life. Maybe they're still going on. But to see that word for past in verse 3 is the Greek meaning to pass by or to go past. The tense used implies that the, the course is now closed. It's done. You can no longer go down that path any longer. We're done. Were you an alcoholic? Well, you're done. No more. Were you a pornographer? You're done. No more. Were you an angry person? You're done. No more. Were you a church-going, Bible-carrying hypocrite? You're done. No more. The course is closed. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, and which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You once walked. That means you're no longer walking that way. You once walked according to the course of this world, but because of your new identity in Christ, that course is closed. I read a story about a man who had a particularly poor game of golf. As the golf course closed, this club member skipped the clubhouse and started to go home. As he was walking to the parking lot to get his car, a policeman stopped him and asked, Did you tee off on the 16th hole about 20 minutes ago? Yes, the golfer responded. Did you happen to hook your ball so that it went over the trees and off the course? Yes, I did. How did you know that, he asked. Well, the policeman said very seriously, Your ball flew out of the course and onto the highway and crashed to a driver's windshield. The car went out of control, crashing into five other cars and a fire truck. The fire truck couldn't make it to the fire, and the building burned down. So what are you going to do about it? The golfer thought about it carefully and responded, I think I'll open my stance a little bit, tighten my grip, and lower my right thumb just a little bit. Listen, when it comes to sin and the way we used to live, the course is closed. It, it's done. We're, we're no longer welcome to go back. It's done. No longer are we to walk in those old ways. That's the way we as Christians should view our lives previous to salvation, namely as a closed matter. We have died with Christ, and just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so too we have also risen in that newness of life. Those old habits, those old associates, uh, practices, places, amusements, everything in the old life which is not in accordance with the Word of God should, should be gone in the born-again life of a believer, of a Christian. Again, this is not saying that we won't struggle with sin and temptation to some degree throughout the Christian life. The Bible is clear in pointing out in 1 John 1, 8 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But because we're born again when we're given a new identity, you know, again, that doesn't mean we'll never sin again. I wish it did. I wish we could become sinless, but we certainly can sin less. Now, when Paul writes in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin so that may grace abound, he was not speaking of a believer's occasional falling into sin because that happens to every believer. Rather, he's speaking of a person who continually, intentionally, willfully, habitually sins. 
It's an established pattern in their lives. Now, if there's been no change in a person's lifestyle after conversion, and if they continue to sin, the question is not so much whether that person can lose his or her salvation. Rather, was that person really saved to begin with? Were they truly converted? Perhaps he or she never really heard the true gospel to begin with. Maybe they were presented the gospel in, in, in a, that really wasn't the gospel in a way that really wasn't the gospel, and they believed something that really wasn't the gospel. In fact, I've heard people present the gospel this way. They'll say, hey, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to go to heaven? Say this prayer, and Jesus come into my heart. I want to go to heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, and you'll be saved. You're saved. Great. What do you think? Well, I think I don't get it. No, you just need to believe and you're saved. Folks, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke twenty four forty seven, there is forgiveness of sin for all those who repent. Jesus said in Matthew nine thirteen, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen carefully. If the gospel message does not call for repentance from sin, then it's not the gospel message. And I believe there's, sadly, there are thousands upon thousands of people who claim to be Christians who really are not at all and are on their way to hell. Maybe they've had their eyes open, but they have never really turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way. Holiness starts where justification finishes, but if holiness doesn't start, we have the right to suspect that justification never started either. In other words, to the Christian, to the person who truly is born again, who truly is saved, his or her identity in Christ will be noticed. Notice in the way you live, and the way you conduct your business, and the way you raise your family. Because we have this new identity in Christ, and because Jesus Christ was crucified and died for our sin and rose again from the dead, so too, positionally, we have done the same in Christ. When Jesus died, we died with him to sin. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Sin no longer has power over the life of the believer. That's living the born-again life. Brings us to our second point. Number one, our identity is in Christ. Number two, we have Christ's supremacy is in us. Now, the word supremacy means we must let certain things reign supreme in our hearts. If we are truly born again, that means Christ is reigning supreme in our lives. It means that God's word is reigning supreme in our lives. It means that our, our stance, our testimonies, our priorities, our endurance, and our love for one another should reign supreme in our hearts. And Peter tells us, why he says, listen, we, in verse 3, we have spent enough of our past life living in sin. Isn't it interesting after coming to Christ, you see your old life through different lenses. What you used to think was so cool and so, so fun, now you see it's just purposelessness. You're embarrassed by it, or at least we should be. I've heard people say, man, I wish I would have come to Christ sooner. The years that I was partying and, and living for the flesh was such a waste. Because now you're no longer living like others do. You're always lusting after things, drunk, trying to find where the next party is. Those things don't satisfy. That course was closed, a waste of time. Now, those friends in your old life, Peter brings up, and look at verse 4, he says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The word flood of dissipation that Peter speaks of here, the word flood speaks of excess, and so does the word dissipation. It speaks of excess wastefulness. He's saying there that you used to run in that same excessive wastefulness as these old guys did. I don't know what they call it now, but when I was in high school, if you were my age, you'll remember, if you were high on drugs, if you'd were drunk, you were wasted, you know, and you had your, your buddy, hey, man, I got wasted last night, dude, or hey, man, you want to get wasted? Think about that. I mean, do you want to put your body through excessive wastefulness? I remember telling my buddies for, for the first time, listen, you know, I, I can't go to the party because, listen, I'm a Christian now and I no longer do those things. What do I think? Tom got weird. Tom got religion, you know. Of course, in Peter's time, they were facing much worse persecution, that type of verbal abuse, than that you or I could ever face. When you know, when you you converted to Christ back then, you, they were concerned for their very lives. But but it all started with slander. Listen to the way the New Living Translation puts verse four. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. 
They're surprised. Man, don't you want to party? I, I can't believe you don't want to party. No, God, God changed me. See, see, Peter in chapter 3 pointed out that the unsaved might persecute you for doing what is right. Here in chapter 4, he's mentioning a different problem that you'll encounter. The unsaved will actually, they, they're, they're upset that you don't want to participate with them in doing what is wrong, in their sinful activities. And when, when you refuse, they just don't understand. And so what do they do? They slander you. They put you down. Man, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've had that happen to you. Friends shun you. Conversation stops when you walk into the room. Here comes the Christian, you know. You hear whispers behind your back. They think it's strange. That's what Peter says. They think it's strange that you do not run with them. You know, they don't think it's strange if you wreck your body, you know, with alcohol. They don't think it's strange if you destroy your, your, your home with infidelity and immorality. They don't think it's strange when people wreck their jobs because they have hangovers. But man, you know, have a, a drunk become sober. Have someone who's impure become pure. Someone who's not saved get saved. And, and man, you that's strange. You have a Bible now and you go to church and you want to hang out with Christians. That's strange. I think about the Apostle Paul. You know, when he shared his testimony before a Roman governor, and he talked about how God changed his life and what Jesus Christ has done through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And, and Festus, this governor, stood up and said, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're strange. You know, it's just strange. Now, if Paul would have said, hey, man, I got stoned drunk last night, Festus would have said, way to go, party on, Paul. Wouldn't have a problem with that. But he said, I'm a changed man. They think it's strange. So what do you do with the unbelieving friends that, that think you're strange? Do we ignore them? That's our tendency. But if we're going to live this born-again life, if there has been a change in us, then it's going to change how we treat one another. We're going to have a heart for the lost. We're going to be patient with them who are lost. And we're going to, as we'll read in verse 6, we're going to preach to them. We're going to seek to reach the lost. Listen, you may be the only hope and person in their life that, that God can use to open their eyes. God used someone in your life to open your eyes. But at this point, maybe they don't get it. And they'll often slander you. But Peter says to those that slander you, look at verse 5. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now understand, Peter's heart in that verse, it's not being vindictive. He's not saying, oh, they're going to get theirs. You know, slander me or they're going to get theirs. That's not what he's saying. Because look at verse 6. We see his heart and compassion for the lost. He says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to, the, to God in the Spirit. Now, Peter's not saying that, that, that there's some strange gospel that's possible after someone's died that you can preach the gospel to them. That's not what he's saying. Once you're dead, there are no second chances. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. No second chance. So then what is Peter saying here? Well, Peter is saying past tense here, and he's giving an example. He is saying, preach to those who think you're strange in the same way that the gospel, gospel was preached also to those who are dead. In other words, those who have long now since died. Now, not is preached to those who are dead, but was preached to those who are dead. Listen, again, we look at it another way. Before we came to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Until the gospel was preached and there was a change. See, I believe Peter's talking about, about those martyrs who have died for their faith in Christ. That the gospel was preached to them. They lived for Christ. They repented of their sin. And they ceased living for their flesh. They were living to do the will of God. And because of that, many suffered and were persecuted and put to death for their faith. They were martyred. There may have been many people who would not compromise one bit from their commitment to the Lord as supreme in their lives, and they lost their lives for it. Maybe you remember, it's been almost 20 years now, but, but Cassie Bernal, the young Christian girl that was killed at Columbine High School, Cassie was just a 17-year-old junior with long blonde hair, hair that she wanted to cut off and donate to, to cancer patients who had lost theirs through chemotherapy. She was active in a youth group at West Pools Community Church. She was known for carrying her Bible to school. Casey was actually in the library reading her Bible when these two young killers burst in. And according to witnesses, one of the killers pointed his gun at Casey and asked, Do you believe in God? And Cassie paused and then answered, Yes, I believe in God. 
Then the gunman asked her why, but before she could answer, he shot her dead. Cassie's martyrdom was even more remarkable when you consider that she at one time had dabbled in the occult. She was dabbling in witchcraft. She embraced that same darkness and emptiness that drove her killers to do what they did. But then two years prior to her death, Cassie dedicated her life to Christ. Her life turned around. She was a light for Christ. Now, she's living in God, with heaven, in the presence of the Lord. And that's what Peter's saying here. At one time, those that have given their life to Christ, those that have turned from darkness to His wonderful light, they repented. They received the Lord and put Him first in their life to rule and reign supreme. Now, because they had to die for their faith, they're living in God and the Spirit. They're in the presence of the Lord forever. And that's what he's saying. You can live for the will of God now, which might mean that you are persecuted by men here. Your life will be difficult. But understand, as a result of Christ reigning in your life, man, you have eternity in Christ for heaven. So don't worry about it. So then why then would you ever want to go back to the life of sin? If you've truly been born again, then you know that you can never go back. Now what does that mean for us? Well, it means three things. Number one, we're going to get serious about our walks with Christ. We're going to get serious about our walks with Christ. Why? Look at verse 7. Peter says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. We're going to get serious about our walks with Christ because Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Now, what does that mean? Well, in context, I think it's clear. Peter's been talking about the coming judgment and the judge who's ready to judge the living and the dead. We know that'll take place at the second coming of Jesus now, most New Testament references that speak of the end, they're, they're in reference to Christ's second coming to set up his kingdom on the earth. The early church believed it. They thought it could happen at any time. They lived in, lived in great anticipation that every day could be that day. I think that's what made them such a powerful church. They're living for heaven. They believed that Christ could, could, could come back at any moment. Now, the fact that he didn't come back in their lifetime, it, you know, didn't change things, it, 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 even though it's been almost 2,000 years. Like I can tell you right now, if you could talk to any of those that lived 2,000 years ago and, and ask them, they would tell you I, they have no regrets at all for the sacrifices they made or the effort they put out to reach for people for the kingdom of God. They would never say, well, you know, I wish I would have, you know, gone on more vacations, you know, when I was on the earth or, you know, or, or what a bummer my life was. I wish I'd made more money. No, the, the, if anything, they said, man, I wish I would have had more time to do more for Christ. You see, while they were here, they were storing up their treasures in heaven. Now they're enjoying it. They're with Jesus. They've heard him say, well done, that good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Listen, this is the way the Lord wants us to live. Because we know that the end is, is all things is, is, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus Christ needs to be very first in the aspect of every aspect of our lives. And we need to see the urgency of getting the gospel message out. That repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. That's what it means to live in the expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, when Peter says the end of all things, he's reminding us that history is moving towards a definite goal and a purpose. There's going to be an end of all things. Since the fall of Adam and even in the garden, God has been working in and through human history to save men and to save lost women. It's been his plan since the beginning and will be completely fulfilled when Jesus returns. And, and we're told that throughout the pages of Scripture, this is going to happen. Why? Because we would be ready so that we, we would be ready. Let me tell you this. There is no event, prophetically speaking, that must take place before the rapture of the church takes place. I've shared this recently. You know, when, when, you, when it's October and you see the Christmas decorations in the stores already, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Right. In the same way, you know, we see the signs of the last days of the Great Tribulation, what's going to be going on during the Great Tribulation period. We know that the rapture is close. Maybe you've seen this. It's been in the news lately, what is called bitcoins. Bitcoins are a way of buying and selling without cash. It's a secure digital currency that many believe will replace the U.S. dollar, making any paper, paper currency obsolete. One article I read stated that due to, the, due to the new technologies that are out there, using the technology of the 3D printing that they have now, a counterfeiter would be able to recreate any of the, of the uh, currencies in the entire world and then flood the world with perfect copies of every national currency. And no one will be able to tell the difference between a fake dollar bill and a, and a real dollar bill. When that happens, it's all worthless. 
I mean, you know, world governments won't have a choice. They'll have to quickly do away with physical currency altogether, leaving all economic transactions to go electronic. And we're, we're seeing that today. You know, Amazon.com, click, point, done. Yeah, there's no cash going any place. I mean, you, you, it's all credit card. Very, very easy transition. The Bible teaches in the last days there will be a cashless society where you'll not be able to buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast on you, that proof of allegiance to the, to the Antichrist. The Bible teaches in the last days there will be global lawlessness. Are we not seeing that today? The Bible teaches in the last days all will be against the nation of Israel. Well, in order for that to happen, Israel needed to be back on her land. She, she's there. You know, the Bible says in the last days there'll be a third temple that will be built in Israel and sacrifices will be reestablished. Let me tell you, you go on, go on the website templeinstitute.org and you'll see basically that every preparation are pretty much made for that to happen, for the temple to be rebuilt. All they need is a word to build. You see, we're at a point today of the stage being set that, that, we, that will lead to the Great Tribulation period in which those who are truly born again will escape. When I see the world getting ready to embrace a one-world economy, a one-world government, a one-world leader, a one-world monetary system, all these things that God says will take place in the last days, I agree with Peter when he says, the end really is at hand. And if it was at hand 2,000 years ago, we are more at hand today. So we need to be serious about our walks with Christ. Secondly, we need to be serious about our walks with Christ when it comes to prayer. Look again at verse 7. He says that. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Let me tell you, our prayer life is so important in the days in which we're living today. Martin Luther said this concerning prayer. As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Listen, prayer does four things in the life of the believer. Number one, prayer aligns our hearts with the Lord. It gets us lined up with the Lord. Not, not our moving God, but, but us reporting for duty. Lord, what would you have me to do? Number two, prayer expresses our dependency upon the Lord. Lord, we need you. We cry out, Lord, we need you now more than ever. Number three, prayer puts us in a place to receive God's power, to receive all that God has for us. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Number four, and really important, prayer helps us to resist temptation. Jesus said in Mark fourteen thirty eight, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is so important. It's important in our fight against the enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's talking about the armor of God. The one weapon that we have to stand against the enemy is that of prayer. He writes in verse 18 of Ephesians 6, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Importance of prayer. But not only Paul, Jesus put it this way. Listen to what he had to say in Mark chapter 13, verse 33 through 37. He says, Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Missile may be coming. Watch. The end may be coming. Watch. Watching and praying. Watching and praying. Over and over and over again, we're told to watch and pray. See, it's about living for Christ. It's about the born-again lifestyle, being ready for Christ's return. It's about being serious in our prayer life. And number three, we should be serious about our walks with Christ when it comes to loving one another. Look at verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Notice what it doesn't say. And above all things, put up with each other, okay? It doesn't say that. And above all things, just be civil to each other. No. We're to have a genuine, true, faithful, honest, fervent love for one another. The word fervent there means stretched out. You're reaching out to love one another. It's the act of one who is, instead of living in a self-centered life, gives of himself to others. So that love is the very first thing that we do as Christians. And then he says, love will cover a multitude of sins. 
Not that we're trying to, to hide sin, you know, from a person's life. We want them to see their sin and repent. But in other words, we're not going to broadcast their sin. If you see someone who's in sin or struggling in sin, you go to them in quietness and you share with them and you help them. You don't broadcast it all over to the world. I'm so thankful that God doesn't, you know, when we blow it in sin, that God doesn't broadcast it to the world, you know. Went up to this program to, to let you know that, that Thomas sinned today and this is what he did. God doesn't do that because he loves us. Because of love. And that's what Peter is saying. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you belong to me. By all this, will know that you're my disciple if you have love one for another. Then Peter goes on, we're to be serious and watchful in the way that we treat each other. And verse 9, he says, be hospitable to one another. I can do that. But he has, without grumbling. Are you kidding me, Peter? Come on. I can be hospitable, but if it's the grumbling part. I mean, you don't know my boss. You don't know the guy that I work with. I mean, you don't know what a slob my husband is. And I have to constantly pick up after him. You don't know, you don't have to work in a cubicle next to Mr. I'm wearing enough cologne you can smell three miles away. You just don't know. Be hospital without grumbling. I'm sure Peter didn't have a three-year-old. You know, I don't know. You know, I think we all do nice things for people. But then we lose our reward when we start to grumble and complain about it. Paul gives the same warning in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, nobody grumbles about doing fun and, and pleasant things. Oh, I've got to go to Disneyland. You know, it's the miserable things we grumble about. It's that ridiculous chore that, that you have to do again and again and again. I gotta take the trash out. I gotta wash it. I gotta do the laundry. Things you'd rather not do. Cleaning up after that person. Serving that ungrateful customer. We complain about everything. We complain about the weather. We complain about the traffic. We complain about the government. You know, we, we complain about being stuck working inside where the weather's beautiful outside. We complain about being stuck inside when the weather's horrible outside. We bellyache about our boss, about our co-workers, about the customers. We grumble about our teens, our toddlers. It's our way of life. That's why God wants us to be different. He wants us to stand out against this dark backdrop of the world uh, as his witnesses. Paul, actually God tells us we're to, to, to do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining. Peter says, be hospital to one another without grumbling. You may think that's, that it's impossible, you know, because of where you work or your boss or your co-workers. But listen, when God tells us to do something, He gives us the strength to do it. And as we do it, then we stand out. You know, when you carry out a ridiculous job assignment, and in your mind you're going, this is stupid, but you do it cheerfully and joyfully, man, you, you're going to stand out. You'll be, as Paul says, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why? Because the world's watching us. The world wants to assure itself that Christians aren't any different than, than they are. And if we act just like them, then our faith hasn't really done anything for us. Why would we think they're going to cry out to a Savior if they have seen no change in us from the rest of the world? Let me say, most unbelievers don't commit adultery. Most people don't steal. Most are decent, upright citizens. But everyone complains. Everyone grumbles. I think that's why Peter says, you know, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. When we do it, it stands out. It demonstrates the reality of our faith. It demonstrates the born-again life that we're living. Next, Peter says, when it comes to our walks with Christ and living the born-again life, it'll be seen in how serious we are about in serving one another. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Listen. Every born-again believer has been given a gift from God. It's a gift. God has given every one of us a gift. As each one has received a gift, period. We received it. Then he says, we are to minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Understand, though, first and foremost, that it is a gift. Gift means that you didn't earn it, you didn't work for it, you don't deserve it, but God in His love gave you a gift. So Peter says, you have a gift, now minister or use it, the gift that God has given you, that the way it's designed to be used. Well, how is it supposed to be used? It's serving one another. That's the purpose of the gift that God has given you, to serve one another. 
Listen, your gift isn't to put up on a nice shelf and look how pretty the wrapping paper is on the shelf. You need to get it down, open it up, and use it. Use it, use it for what God has intended it to be used for. Use it to serve the body of Christ, to bless the body of Christ. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, I do think that people can get confused between the gift that God has given you and where you are to use those gifts. Let me give you an example. Maybe you're gifted in singing or playing an instrument and you think, I need to be a part of the worship team on the stage. That said, it would be very cool to use my gift on the stage. That's what I need to do. But maybe your kid, the Lord wants you to use your gift downstairs with the kids in the children's ministry. Maybe God wants you to use that gift Second Sunday of the month in the convalescent home, sharing worship there for Bible study. Maybe God wants to do a whole new ministry with you. Start doing a Bible study in a prison and you can lead worship for that. But you may fight that, Lord, I need to be on the big stage. The problem is you're focused on what you perceive your use of the gift God has given you instead of what God wants to use that gift for in your life. Think about this. Maybe you got a, a new iron for Christmas. You know, maybe it was a gift. And if you don't use that for its intended use, it could be disastrous. Do you ever read the instructions on an iron? Do not iron while, you know, wearing the clothes, is what it says. So that tells me somewhere, somebody said, let me just iron this real fast while they're wearing the clothes, okay? But that label's there for a reason. God has given you a gift. He desires you to use that gift in a certain way that He directs, that He leads. Another one may say, well, I have the gift of teaching. I need to express my views. Great. There's a lot of needs for that. K1, Two, three, four, fifth, and sixth graders. All sorts of needs in the children's ministry. Yeah, but I was kind of wanting your job, Tom. Well, okay, well. <laughs> Listen, when, when our motivation is to love one another, when my focus is on others, then my heart's going to say, okay, where are the needs? God, where do you want to use me? What, what do you want to do? Where's there a need for help? Uh, need to help? Okay, Lord, I, I want to help there. Because the gift is not for you. It's been given for you to bless others, to bless the body of Christ with. So that when you use that gift that God has given you, you're given that opportunity to be a living illustration of verse 10, a good steward of the manifold grace of God. That's why by grace we're saved, by grace we receive these gifts. So we just want to be good steward over what God has given to us. Finally, we're told in verse 11 how to minister to the gifts God has given to us. Look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which, which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How are we to minister? With the ability and the strength in which God supplies. Who supplies? God supplies. Not us, not in our flesh, but through God's Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6 not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from start to finish. We've been given that new identity in Christ, new way of looking at sin, new way of, of looking at one another. He should rule supreme in our lives. And if we truly does, then we're going to live this born-again life. As we close, listen, the end is at hand. How serious are we in our walks with Christ? How serious are we about prayer? I bet you there was a lot of Hawaiians praying last Saturday. A whole lot. Are we serious when it comes to having a fervent love for one another? Are we serious when it comes to coming alongside of each other and instead of grumbling and complaining, serving one another, forgiving one another? Love covers a multitude of sins. Are we serious about using the gifts that God has given to us? Listen, we may all get an emergency text message. Ballistic missile inbound, take shelter immediately. How would you react? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to hear, well done, a good and faithful servant? Or would you say, oh, I wish I had a little more time to do things for the Lord. Don't put it off. We don't know how much time any of us have. Finally, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've not repented of your sin if you've not committed to following Him, I would love to invite you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's God alone who has the power to forgive sin because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And you have that, that choice now to make. To have your sin forgiven. To have this abundant life in Jesus Christ and to know if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. But if you don't make that choice today, you really have made that choice. Jesus said, you're the for me or against me. 
If you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. If you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. So you have a choice. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, turn to Him today, or walk out of here in rejection of Jesus Christ. You don't want to do that. You don't want to walk out here. Jesus loves you. He gave His life for you. And all you need to do is say, Lord, I want to be born again this morning. I want to be saved today. If that's your desire, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, as we look at what it means to live a born-again life, to have our sin forgiven, to, to look differently at sin, Lord, to look differently as we treat each other, to look differently when it comes to helping and ministering to one another. But, Lord, maybe there are some here this morning that are not born again yet. Lord, that they've not experienced the forgiveness of their sin. And if today they were to die, they would eternally be in a place of torment and suffering forever. A place apart from you forever. Lord, I don't want that for them. We as believers don't want that for them. Our heart, Lord, is for them to come to know you, to repent of their sin and give their life to you. Lord, for them to be born again this morning. So, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is not born again, we pray, Father, that you'd speak to their heart, that they would make the decision to live their life for you and give their life to you this morning, repent from their sin and turn to you. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to know that your sin is forgiven? If you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. Getting your life with Christ. That's what it's about. Anybody at all, just raise your hand so I could pray for you. I see you in the back in the corner. God bless you. Anybody else? You want to give your life to Jesus Christ? Just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning. Again, this is just between you and, and the Lord. and saying, Lord, I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again today. Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Maybe you've accepted Christ at one time in your life, but you've not walked with Him. Maybe there was no change taking place in your life and you thought you were saved, but after looking at the things we've looked at this morning, you really aren't saved. Or maybe you are, but you've fallen away and you want to rededicate your life to the Lord this morning. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? God bless you over in the other corner. Anybody else? While the heads are bowed and our eyes are still closed, if you raised your hand, but even if you didn't, but you want Christ this morning, I'm just going to ask you to just repeat this prayer after me. Let's pray. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it today. I ask for your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and rising again from the dead. I want to follow you from this day forward. I commit my life to you today. I recommit my life to you today. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to walk with you. I put my faith and trust in you. From this day forward, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, God bless you. Let's give the Lord a hand for touching us.